Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. The miracle of Christmas. How can anybody accept a wild story such as the virgin birth? Well, my friend, that is just exactly what we will be talking about today, along with other events in the history of the Christmas holiday on this special edition of the Bob Siegel Show, starting with the birth of Christ. No surprises there, I don't think. I mean, just where else would we start? The virgin birth did come up in an interesting conversation on one of my trips to Israel a number of years ago. On this particular day, I was being escorted by my own private tour guide, an older man, an Orthodox Jew himself, who was nevertheless happy to take me to some Christian sites such as the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of Christ's tomb, the place of Christ's crucifixion. Of course, he was somewhat astonished that I, as a Jew, believed in Jesus, and so he asked about my background and conversion testimony. While sharing my own story, I also talked about many prophecies associated with the coming of the Jewish Messiah, prophecies Jesus fulfilled. Finally, he says, well, one thing I just have to ask you, how can you take something like the virgin birth seriously? I says, well, is that really any more miraculous than some of the things you accept as an Orthodox Jew? Look at the parting of the Red Sea. He got this little smile on his face. He goes, ah, but that can be explained naturally. Now, I knew he was going where he was going because I've talked to so many skeptics. And I, I just kind of cut him off. I said, yes, I've heard the argument. I know there's a place along the Sea of Reeds with shallow waters that natural winds are known to push back from time to time. But think about it. If that was what the Bible had meant, we would then have an even greater miracle. How did such shallow water drown a whole army of Egyptian charioteers? He nodded and he laughed and I then continued. But as for scientific explanations, I do not believe the Bible is talking about some kind of magic when it reports miracles. It's just that man does not yet understand everything about science. Imagine if past generations could look ahead and see a rocket ship or a cell phone or a computer screen. Those wonders would look very miraculous to them. Likewise, a thousand years from now, we realize people will do things that will absolutely baffle our minds. But we assume they will do it by harnessing some newly discovered scientific laws. If people can do that someday, why can't God, who established all scientific law, do it right now? Well, my words seem to make sense to the tour guide, but there's another fascinating discussion associated with the virgin birth. It actually helps to solve a couple of additional paradoxes, which skeptics enjoy bringing up. Let's put the virgin birth on hold for a moment. It's going to come right back, but let's put it on hold for a moment. Here's a question that I, as a Christian apologist, get quite frequently. They say, Bob, aren't the genealogies of Jesus and Matthew and Luke a contradiction? They give different names for Joseph's father. And after that, the rest of the lineage is also listed differently. Now, on a first glance, this does indeed look like a contradiction. Matthew 1.16 says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. But now reading from Luke 3, where they're given a genealogy, it says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now catching this, Matthew says, Jacob is the father of Joseph. Luke says Heli is the father of Joseph. In all probability, Luke is giving us Mary's genealogy rather than Joseph's, and Matthew is giving us Joseph. You're saying, but Bob, it doesn't say that. Luke also calls Jesus the son 
of Joseph. Yes, he does. You need to understand in ancient Judaism, if a man had no son, his son-in-law was viewed as his son, and the same man received his inheritance. Therefore, Heli might actually be the father of Mary, and it would have been considered just as proper to call him the father of Joseph, especially in a genealogy. Evidence for this plausible theory can be found turning to the pages of the Jerusalem Talmud, an ancient rabbinical commentary that tends to paint Jesus and his mother Mary with derogatory strokes. Nevertheless, it helps us out historically. In the Talmud, Mary is actually referred to as the daughter of Heli. Isn't that interesting? But you're still wondering, well, why would God have given us both genealogies of Jesus, one through the father, one through the mother? That is an excellent question, and it has a fascinating answer. Track with this. Although not his blood father, Joseph was Jesus's legal father, and Joseph was related to King David through the kingly line. David, of course, had many wives and therefore many children. As a result, not all of his offspring were in the kingly line, but the Messiah had to be both a blood descendant of King David and legal heir through the kingly line. Now then, Mary was also related to King David, but not through the kingly line. The two genealogies tell us something very interesting here about Jesus' credentials. Jesus was a literal blood descendant of King David, not through the kingly line, because of his mother Mary. He was also a legal descendant of David through the kingly line due to his adoptive father, Joseph. Now, why is all this relevant? Because the last king of Judah, prior to the destruction of the nation at the hands of the Babylonians, this was many centuries before Christ, this was a man named King Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin did not walk with God, and as a result, God predicted through the prophet Jeremiah that none of Jehoiachin's descendants would ever sit on the throne of Israel. Now we have an even bigger paradox. If the Messiah must be related to King David and legal heir through the kingly line, then he must also be related to King Jehoiachin. But the Jehoiachin curse prohibits further kings of Israel for none of Jehoiachin's children can sit on the throne. Ladies and gentlemen, the virgin birth solves our paradox. Jesus is a literal blood descendant of King David, but not through the kingly line. Therefore, the Jeconiah curse does not affect him. Still, the Messiah had to be a legal heir to the throne, and Jesus is legally related to David through Joseph. But since it is legal only, and not a blood relation, the Jehoiachin does not touch him. The Bible has been around a long time. Often what seems like a contradiction to us is worked out by a wonderful God who loves to startle and amaze his followers. Messianic prophecy has been fulfilled through the miracle of the virgin birth. This seems to be the reason for the two different genealogies, and that is one of the reasons why the Messiah needed to be born of a virgin. Joseph, somebody who we don't talk about a lot, but we ought to be able to sympathize with. Can you just imagine being engaged to somebody and she tells you one day, uh, sweetie, I, I have some news. You might want to sit down. Um, I'm pregnant. <laughs> oh, and you might want to sit down again. Now, I know this is going to be kind of hard to believe, but honestly, I never cheated. The baby actually comes from God. I can see how you may have a little trouble accepting that. We hear about the virtues of Mary all the time, but what about Joseph? Eventually, an angel spoke to him in a dream and told him Mary was telling the truth, but still, this could not have been easy anyway. What about the date of Christ's birth? The Bible does not give us a date. 
December the 25th is a proposed date that was put forth much later. We'll talk more about that. But first, we can estimate the general time of Christ's birth. It was not 1 AD, actually, which is what some would expect since our common era calendar was restarted to follow the birth of Christ. Unfortunately, that calendar is based upon a miscalculation. Historians more accurately calculate Christ's birth between 3 to 4. The year is not given in Scripture, but some historical events close to the birth of Christ are given. Two of these events have been mentioned by Bible skeptics in an attempt to disprove the accuracy of the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. Who was Matthew? Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. In his Gospel, we are reading an eyewitness account about the ministry of Christ. Luke was not a disciple, but rather an historian who interviewed many people while looking into the life of Jesus. His Gospel begins like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. We notice immediately that these are not the words of a man talking about blind faith. Theophilus's identity is uncertain, but he seems to have been a Roman dignitary of some kind who sponsored an investigation into the matters at hand by a man reputed as being a factual historian. Now, it's difficult for people to think of Luke as a historian, but only because they're used to thinking of him as part of the Bible. And the Bible tends to be approached with the unfair image of being just a religious document. But Luke did write as an accurate historian. This has been verified by many scholars, including Sir William Ramsey, one of the most famous archaeologists who has ever lived. Educated in the German higher criticism schools of the late 1900s, where the Bible was torn apart according to popular and extremely subjective theories, Ramsey originally took it for granted that the Gospel of Luke was untrustworthy. This all changed with his journeys to the Grecian Roman world and subsequent archaeological digs began to verify fact after fact as reported in the third gospel and Acts also penned by Luke. A serious controversy involves Luke's date of the Roman census. That's relevant to our discussion today because Luke pinpoints this as the time when Jesus was born. The census conducted under the Syrian governor Cyrenius took place in 6 AD according to the ancient historian Josephus. But again, Luke associates the census with the time of Christ's birth, which according to Matthew took place during the reign of Herod the Great. And we know Herod was dead after four. Josephus says the census was six AD. We would seem to have a fairly major contradiction, but in 1912, Ramsey discovered an inscription in Antioch stating that Cyrenius had been governor twice. Although it is not mentioned where the dual governorship could easily have been in Syria, since we know he ruled as governor of Syria at least one time. That is the likely location for his earlier term and the location Ramsey argued for. As you can see, even though a specific date is not given, the historical era is given with great accuracy. It is believed that Pope Julius chose this to replace the Roman festival of Saturnalia, a very unusual day that marked the winter solstice on the Roman Julian calendar in which slaves and masters traded places for a whole month. But the first day of this month-long interval was December the 25th. 
Now, I'm sure the slaves were very careful about what they ordered their masters to do, and as much as one month later, the roles were going to reverse themselves again. But years after Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal, the church changed this custom to instead celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, about a month ago, when my pastor friend Jim Barrier was on the show, we talked about the phenomenon of Christians turning pagan holidays into Christian holidays, and we mentioned at that time, you'll recall, that many Christian pastors speak against celebrating Christmas for this exact reason. Allow me to once again pose a simple question. If Christianity is about converting souls or converting nations, what exactly is wrong with converting holidays? Yes, Christmas was once Saturnalia, but it's not anymore. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he addressed a similar concern, another pagan religious practice being morphed into an alternative social function. This time, the situation was meat. In ancient Greece, leftover meat from animal sacrifices was placed on the open market. One honestly could not purchase meat or eat meat without knowing that it had first been used in the worship of some Greek deity. Many Christians worship these very idols before turning to Christ and getting saved. And they were feeling guilty about enjoying such meat once again, out of fear, understandable fear, that they were returning to idol worship, the very practice they had recently renounced. This caused a rift in the church. Some said it's just meat. There's more serious things to worry about. Others found the consumption of animals to be sinful. Paul was asked to comment on this situation. He reminded people that meat by itself was something neutral. If it had been used in the sacrifice of some fake god, so be it. As long as a Christian renounces former religion and consumed the food for no reason other than the fact that he liked meat, no harm was being done. Catching on? If God can convert a soul, if God can even convert a piece of meat, he can certainly convert a holiday. The Bible teaches us about a God who judges our hearts and motives and intentions. Now, there are a couple of early church leaders who had more biblical reasons for December the 25th. The earliest December the 25th calculation was Hippolytus of Rome, who wrote in the early 3rd century. He assumed, and it was only an assumption, that the miraculous conception of Jesus happened during the spring equinox, which he estimated to be on March 25th, and then after that he added nine months. Now, we do know that spring was the time of Christ's crucifixion, and there was a belief in those days that prophets were martyred around the same time of the year as their births, that somehow God made that cyclical. And that belief, of course, is not stated anywhere in the Bible. It's just another tradition. Another church leader, John Christentum, late 300s and early 400s, also liked December the 25th. His reasoning is that the offering of incense in Luke chapter 1 was something that was associated with the high priest, and therefore it had to signify Yom Kippur. Of course, it doesn't say high priest there. And for myself, I find nothing conclusive about either of these calculations. But on the other hand, I don't feel obligated to go to the other side of the screen and ascribe to the popular belief that Jesus was born in April. I hear this all the time. And that's based on the fact that winter would have been too cold for shepherds to be out with their sheep at night. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel is a very warm climate. Yes, it gets cold. But this is part of the world that could easily have had a milder winter. Bottom line, we just don't know what day Jesus was born. Another bottom line, so what? We can still celebrate his birth. Originally, the big holiday for Christians was Easter. They did not celebrate the birth of Christ at all. When Christmas began, it was first titled Feast of the Nativity. 
This custom spread to Egypt by 432, and it found its way to England by the end of the 6th century. By the end of the 8th century, it was all over Europe, including Scandinavia. By the Middle Ages, Christianity had essentially replaced pagan religion. On Christmas Day, believers attended church quite piously, but then they continued the celebration in a very rowdy, mischievous manner. People were often drunk. The atmosphere was more like a loud carnival than what we would today celebrate as Christmas. It could be compared to Mardi Gras. Every year, a beggar or student would be crowned and dubbed the Lord of Misrule. Other friends and participants pretended to be his subjects. Poor people would knock on the doors of wealthy houses, demanding their best food and their best drink. It was more like trick-or-treating than Christmas caroling. But we do have a Christmas carol whose lyrics, maybe you don't think about this much, but the lyrics go back to that time in We Wish You a Merry Christmas. We usually sing the first verse. We don't always sing the second, but here it is. Now bring us some figgy pudding and bring it right here. Notice how they're demanding it. We won't go until we get some, meaning we're going to do something to your house if we don't get some. If owners refused, visitors were likely to vandalize their property. This got so bad that in the early 17th century, Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans actually outlawed Christmas. It was returned by popular demand when Charles II returned to the throne. But since early pilgrims and Puritans in America continued to object to Christmas, the holiday was not much a part of our early American history. The holiday was literally banned in Boston. After the Revolutionary War, of course, Americans cared very little for British customs, including their customs about Christmas. And Christmas, many years later, was declared a national American holiday on June 26, 18. 1970. But what would Christmas be like without Santa Claus? Some Christians strongly object to Santa, claiming it takes away from the appropriate celebration of Christ. But Santa is actually based on a real figure of history. We'll discuss the real Saint Nicholas. This, of course, was during the days of the Roman Empire. Because there were a lot of miracles associated with his ministry, a long time later, the Catholic Church canonized him, calling him Saint Nicholas. In the New Testament, the term saint was actually used of all believers, regardless miracles. Saint means set apart by God. Anyway, here's the story that eventually morphed into Santa Claus. In a poverty-stricken home, in order to make ends meet, a father is going to be forced to sell his three daughters into prostitution. Nicholas, the priest, heard about this. For three nights in a row, Nicholas dropped bags of gold coins into the family's window so that the father could instead marry his daughters off and pay a dowry for each of them. During one of those nights, the father waited up to see who had been granted this unexpected generosity. After the coin toss, he ran to the window and recognized St. Nicholas walking off. The name Santa Claus, you can probably guess, came from the Dutch Sinterklaas, a shortened form of St. Nicholas. In England, this figure was known as Father Christmas, who brings presents on Christmas Eve, but not in a flying sleigh. That came much later. In Germany, it's the Christ child himself, they say, who brings gifts. In Sweden, it's a gnome. In Switzerland, it's Chris Kindle. In France, it's Père Noël. But with or without Santa Claus legends, with or without miracles in Christ and other authenticated miracles of the Bible, this seems to be an enjoyable and mystical time of the year for practically everyone. Personally, I did not become a Christian until my second year of college, but there was always something special about this time of the year, even when I was a little kid. Continuing now with the development of the Santa Claus legend, much of what we commonly associate with Santa Claus today actually comes from a poem written by Clement Moore, published in 18. 
1823. This was long before the Civil War. It's entitled A Visit from St. Nicholas, but it's much better known under another title, The Night Before Christmas. Here we are introduced to Santa coming down the chimney with a bag of gifts and then flying off with his reindeer. But interestingly enough, Rudolph was not one of these original reindeer. They were Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, and Blitzen. A good way to memorize them is to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger in Jingle All the Way, rehearsing the names. It was part of a trivia contest to name Santa's reindeer, and he's running to the radio station because the phone won't work, and while he's jogging, as only Arnold can do it, he's going, Dasha, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen. Anyway, Rudolph, the most famous reindeer of all, was an invention from a man named Robert L. May in 1939, he wrote a poem about Rudolph and his red nose to entice customers into the Montgomery Ward department store. At that time, the store was giving out free coloring books so that parents would bring their kids and then, of course, shop while their kids were coloring. Well, Rudolph was their own original coloring book. That's where the poem was found later in that same year. This coloring book poem was turned into a song by Johnny Marks. What about elves? Well, in the night before Christmas, Santa himself is depicted by Moore as an elf. I'm reading part of it. It says he was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf. But in 1850, Louisa May Alcott wrote a book entitled Christmas Elves. And where did the idea of Santa living in the North Pole making toys come from? This one is fascinating. During the 1840s and 1850s, several journeys to the Arctic caught the attention of the entire world. The Arctic had lent itself to fantasy. For one thing, it snowed there all year. And snow by now had become kind of a symbolic association with Christmas. And so with that in mind, a German-born American cartoonist named Thomas Nast began to imagine the North Pole as Santa's habitat. Nast offered 33 drawings about Christmas to Harper's Weekly from 1863 to 1886. And though other artists had previously drawn St. Nicholas, in December of 1866, the issue of Harper's Weekly, Nast gave us the overweight jolly version, along with Santa's workshop and the naughty nice list of children always in his eyesight. And the actual familiar look that we see today was popularized by the Coca-Cola Company in their ads for magazines such as the Saturday Evening Post. The song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, was written by John Frederick Coots and Haven Gillespie. It was first performed on Eddie Cantor's radio show in November of 1934. The song became an instant hit. 30,000 records sold in the first 24 hours. Okay, other Christmas trivia. Each year, 30 to 35 million authentic, honest-to-goodness, genuine Christmas trees are sold in the United States alone. Not fake trees, or as the Hotel Dell now likes to call them, alternative trees. There are 21,000 Christmas tree growers in the United States. These trees generally grow for about 15 years before they're sold. More trivia. Greek and Russian Orthodox churches celebrate Christmas 13 days after the 25th. This is also called Epiphany or Three Kings Day. Unlike what we see in the standard manger scenes, the wise men arrived later. They were not there at the same time as the shepherds. In fact, it could have been much later. According to Matthew, Jesus could have been as old as two at the time because King Herod was attempting to kill all babies two years old and younger. And when the wise men followed the star and arrived, Joseph and Mary were living in a house. They were not hanging out in a stable.
Eggnog. Bet you're wondering about eggnog. The first eggnog made in the United States served the 1607 Jamestown settlement of Captain John Smith. Here's another piece of trivia about eggnog. I hate eggnog. And have you been wondering who poinsettia plants are named after? Of course not. Nobody cares. Not unless you're playing Trivial Pursuit, but I'll tell you anyway, just to bring in a little extra Christmas cheer. They were named after a man named Joel R. Poinsett. He was an American minister to Mexico. He brought the red and green plant back to America from Mexico in 1828. And since it came from Mexico, a federal judge at that time ruled that it had to be considered an American plant and that it was unconstitutional to call it anything else. No, no, no. I just threw that part in. How about the Salvation Army? The Salvation Army has been dispatching donation collectors dressed as Santa Claus as far back as the 1890s. And construction workers initiated the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree tradition in 19. 31. Well, this time of the year, I do like to mention a Christmas tradition of my own that I'm starting my novel, The Dangerous Christmas Ornament. It was written for children and is told in the first person by a middle schooler, but adults have loved it as well because it reminds them of what it was like to look at life through the eyes of a kid. Cat lovers will love this book. If you're ever wondering what your cat would say to you if he could talk. There's this magic wishing ornament in the book, and this kid wishes that his cat will talk and then regrets the wish because the cat is telling them everything he thinks about the family. So cat lovers will love the book. Cat haters will love the book. In the last couple of minutes that we have left, I want to return to the Santa Claus controversy because when I began that controversy, that history. I did mention to you that there are some Christians who have a a real serious problem celebrating Santa Claus because it takes away from the Christian aspect. But as I mentioned, the original Saint Nicholas was a very dedicated Christian. And so some people think that that started what we could call a, a, a spirit of Santa Claus and generosity. Now, as far as little kids believing in Santa Claus, when my, uh, kids, Elizabeth and Nathaniel, were little. We decided not to tell them that Santa Claus was real. To us, uh, and I'm not saying you should do this. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying for us, we made it like a game. But they they understood the presents were coming from mommy and daddy. But Santa Claus was like a game. We had no problem with them watching movies about Santa Claus. But because of the way Santa Claus is described, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. They're almost making them, well, they are making them omnipresent like God. I was trying to imagine as my kids got older, sitting them down one day and saying, now, everything we taught you about God seeing you all the time and answering your prayers, that was all true. But everything we taught you about Santa Claus, that that was not true. It, It just seemed kind of awkward. On the other hand, there are a lot of kids who believed in Santa Claus when they were little and when they're told that it was just a fun story. They don't really have any serious regrets. It made their Christmas a lot more exciting. In fact, even though I was raised... Jewish. My Jewish parents had us believe in Santa Claus, but for only one reason. They didn't really care about Santa Claus. They didn't really care about Christmas. They didn't want me going to school telling other kids that there was no Santa Claus. So they had me believe in them. But of course, when I was older and in second grade and didn't believe in Santa anymore, I certainly did go and tell everybody I knew that there was no Santa Claus. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this Christmas celebration. If you're sitting here and you're listening, and it's kind of like I was saying, even people that are not religious, even people that don't believe in Jesus usually love Christmas time and sense something mystical about it, maybe like I did. There really is a God out there, and you may want to consider that what you're sensing is coming from him. He doesn't clobber you over the head. A lot of obnoxious Christian evangelists will try to clobber you over the head. God won't do that. He's a gentleman, and if you seek God, 
you will find him. This is a promise that we have in the scripture, in many places, actually, in Acts chapter 17, talking about reaching out for God and and the mercies of God. The apostle Paul says, and he's saying this to a group of very distinguished philosophers on Mars Hill, who did nothing but sit around and debate philosophy and metaphysics all day long. He said, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And in Hebrews eleven six, it says, God is a rewarder of any who diligently seek him. But then it's kind of interesting because the Bible says we should seek God, but then the Bible also says nobody seeks God. Left to our own devices, we would not seek God. So if you think you're interested in getting close to God, what's really going on is the Spirit of God is whispering to you. He's drawing you. He's pulling you. So while we may, in our conscious thoughts, think we are seeking, what we're really doing when we think we're seeking is we're responding. And this goes on on a much more subliminal level. Romans 3 says, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So it tells us that we don't seek God, but it also tells us that the Spirit of God is probing us. Jesus said that when his Spirit came, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Even a person that grows up without the Bible, never set foot in a church, never met a missionary, they have a conscience. The conscience is like a radar. Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob.